As Russia continues to cause uncertainty in gas markets, Europe is mobilizing to secure sufficient gas supplies for the coming winter. The latest regulatory mechanism to come into play is the Save Gas for a Safe Winter initiative designed to reduce gas use across member states. Is this measure adequate to prevent gas shortages and are there further regulatory actions that need to be taken to stabilize the energy market? To answer these questions and explore this pressing topic, I'm joined by Monika Morawiecka, Senior Advisor for the Regulatory Assistance Project. Monica, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to have you here. This week, Russia announced a 20% reduction in Nord Stream 1 gas flows. It's a clear indicator that Europe's gas supply is not stable. Should Europe be preparing for a worst-case scenario? What are your thoughts? First of all, Pamela, let me thank you for having me here. I'm delighted to be here. Well, I think we all know by now that Russia is just not a reliable trading partner. And all the signs point to the possibility that the gas from Russia will be cut altogether come winter. And actually, it looks like it's, you know, Russia is playing Europe a bit, if we would allow this language. So it is only prudent that we do prepare for winter. And I'm actually glad that the European Commission is really taking the lead in that. So it looks like Europe as a whole is thinking in spirit of solidarity and unity about how to deal with this threat. And of course, I'm referring here to the safe gas for the safe winter package that was just released by the European Commission and also the following regulation that was proposed on cutting gas on voluntary and mandatory gas cuts in Europe. I think it's very timely. I think it's necessary. And I'm really glad that we have this sort of spirit of solidarity if, of course, certain member states are a bit more reluctant than others to do their part. But all in all, I think we do see a big sort of stepping up the responsibility on everybody's part. And this is what we should be doing in this type of crisis that we have. Monica, thank you for those insights. Yes, the Save Gas for a Safe Winter Package is quite remarkable. If I'm not mistaken, it's to reduce usage by 15%. Is this feasible? Do you think that it's maybe too little too late or do you think that this will actually have a positive impact? Well, I think if we look at the data, we've already seen quite substantial gas savings or gas use going down in Europe since the war has started or since the beginning of the year, actually, because it was already prompted. We remember that the crisis actually started last year, middle of last year, when the gas prices were going up very high. And so the response on the part of consumers, industries was already there. So it started before the war has started. So I think we are seeing already gas reductions around Europe. So this package only sort of reinforces it. And maybe I think coming in summer when normal gas usage is lower than in the winter time and the fall, I think it's timely reminder that we should be doing our part again. And I think, you know, the Commission has proposed 15%. So definitely based on quite solid modelling. 
of course, I've seen lots of models out there and lots of numbers flowing around and some of them are saying that maybe it's not enough. Some of them are saying, oh, we'll be fine without it. So you never know, but it's better to be safe than sorry. So I think it's a very timely package and I think it is feasible. It will be hard, but given that, you know, the efforts have already started before and now coming winter and with the prices still being so high, I think basically the consumers and the industries will know what to do, provided, of course, that there is not too much intervention on the part of prices. Because what I was actually missing in the package was more referring to high prices as being the trigger for the savings. Because the price response is probably the best trigger for savings that we have. Of course, we have to protect the vulnerable. We have to protect households. We have to protect the critical industries. But for everybody else, I think high price means cuts in usage. So this was already there. And I think if member states do not put too much pressure on regulators to be thinking about price caps, price regulation, and things like that, we will get there and we will get through the winter. Definitely. And you did mention that there is this feeling of solidarity that's coming through, that Europe is really on the same page and trying to unite against this threat. However, there are obviously some member states that it might be more challenging to comply with this package. In your opinion, Monica, are there specific member states that you think are perhaps more vulnerable in this situation because of the energy system, because of the infrastructure, or if there's a particular challenge that they are facing that makes them more vulnerable? Well, we have to look at it in two perspectives. One is that, of course, those member states that are more reliant on direct supplies from Russia by pipelines and do not have enough interconnectors with other member states are the most vulnerable. But I don't think that's a huge problem, actually. What is the problem, and I think is sometimes overlooked in the debate and in some of the member states' stance on these proposal by the Commission to have mandatory cuts, was that if we have an economic crisis because of the gas crisis, which is increasingly likely, for example, if we have to cut gas used by industries that are critical for supply chains all around Europe and that are critical for you know, economic ties between European countries, then this crisis will be felt everywhere, regardless of the sort of underlying gas dependency. And I think this is what we have to be worried about. So these larger economic consequences for Europe, if some industries are more affected and the you know the economic output is much lower in the industrialized member states so that's my biggest worry that we are too much concerned with only gas problem and too little with the wider economic implications of the gas problem so i think Again, coming back to the principle of solidarity, if we apply it to gas, we might avert a wider economic crisis. So it's really imperative that everybody does their part. And it's not only saving gas, it's also about saving electricity, of course, because quite a bit of electricity is produced with gas. 
So it's all of the above sort of approach that we should be taking now in Europe. We should be saving fuels, saving electricity, really doing our part, reducing room temperatures and things like that, of course, for the coming winter in order to be safe on the economic side, which will be very challenging. We have very challenging times ahead, I think. Definitely. And I think when you frame it in terms of the potential economic impact, it almost seems like a small price to pay in the interim, you know, to prevent that from happening, because it could really Absolutely. have dire consequences. And of course, for Europe, but the ripple effect would be global. So I think it's a, an important measure to try and keep this from escalating to that point. And I think, you know, it's, it's just a stark reminder of the potential impact of this war. So thank you for painting that Absolutely. picture for us. On and I would also add maybe looking oh. at my country, at Poland, because there are voices in Poland that, oh, but we were prudent. We were, you know, diversifying our supplies. Poland built the LNG terminal, has now almost completed the pipeline to Norway. So why should we be doing anything to help those that were not as prudent and that were not as forward-looking and did not see the threat from Russia. And I think that's wrong to think that because we really need to think about, even if we are so thinking about our own interests, our own interests are in European economy becoming or staying strong and not being weaker. So it's even if we are self-interest, we should be thinking about these economic consequences and should be doing our part. That makes a lot of sense. And if I think about Poland, Specifically, Poland has made such great leaps towards its energy transition. Coming from a, a strong coal background, they've really embraced renewables and come a long way to shift the Polish economy from that coal-heavy burden, if I can put it like that. Do you believe that the current situation could actually end up spurring the energy transition, and not just for Poland, but for greater Europe? that this might actually really push countries to embrace renewables and possibly look at alternative supplies, alternative to gas, perhaps? Well, looking at it objectively, impartially, and logically, renewables are the only long-term solution for the crisis and the only long-term sort of resilience from the supply shocks that we have now. That's renewables. And energy efficiency, of course. So cutting on usage, using the energy more efficiently and producing it from renewables, that's the pathway we should be all looking at. And of course, the previous communications from European Commission, the Repower Europe package and all of that surrounding communications, that was about renewables mostly. And I think this is really the best pathway we could be taking. What I'm worried about is that the crisis is sometimes used by those that are still reluctant, still skeptical, still thinking about the old days were better, that they are pointing their fingers at the wrong things, actually. So we have people in Poland saying, oh, look, the Green Deal failed. And you have to be asking yourself, how does the Green Deal even relate to the behavior of Russia cutting gas flows to Europe and waging a war on our neighbor, that's completely unrelated. And actually, if we were to implement the Green Deal 
forcefully and quickly, we would be in a much better position now from Russia in a few years' time. So I definitely think that renewables are the answer. I definitely think they make a lot of sense now. I definitely think they face still lots of barriers, but there were very good signs from the Commission recently and some of the member states already that are tackling these barriers. The biggest barrier for renewables growth is really the permitting. It just takes too long and it's too complicated. Grids, they are probably not well developed enough for much more renewables in the fuel mix. And also we do not have enough flexibility in our systems, flexibility coming from all sources, both the supply, but definitely demand side flexibility is underrated very much in Europe. Interconnectors, storage, what have you, heat storage, all of that. So I think definitely the crisis is speeding up things on the renewable side. The impact on the upcoming winter, of course, is limited because it just takes more time than a few months to develop renewables and to build them. So the effects of that push towards renewables will be felt in a few years' time, but it will be there. And there are good signs. As you mentioned, Poland, there was a big boom in photovoltaics in Poland over the past two years. We just passed the 10 gigawatt mark. And just to put it into perspective, I think the Polish energy policy, so the, the formal document by the government that was published last year, only thought that this 10 gigawatts will be passed after 2030. So we are doing big things here, but there are still some big obstacles, like the law that prevents locating wind farms closer than two kilometers, really, from houses. That is still under review. It's in the parliament now, but I'm really worried that it's too slow to be changed. And it has been there for six years now, this law that limits development of wind farms, onshore wind farms. And although the picture is getting greener, if you will, it's still very much black because Poland still uses coal for almost 70% of electricity generation, which is very, very high. Of course, most of that coal is domestic. So there you have those that will tell you, oh, look, we have domestic coal. We should not be worried about anything. Let's just use it. That's not the right way of framing it. It's interesting that you refer to the green picture that's still a little bit black. I was having a conversation recently with someone. We were talking about the rise of nuclear again, perhaps in Europe. Obviously, several countries moved away from nuclear pretty quickly and obviously moving away from fossil fuels, replacing with renewables. And, you know, I think we might see an increase in perhaps some of those fossil assets or increased use in some of those old fossil assets and perhaps even nuclear again, which, you know, might taint the green picture a little bit more. Do you think that we're going to see a greater use of these kinds of assets? Well, let's take them one by one. Coal, of course, it's actually reluctantly, but a little bit encouraged that we temporarily use coal assets more just to save gas. So if we agree that coal is either domestic or imported from countries that we do not have problems with or war with, 
then of course temporarily using more coal in order to save gas in electricity generation is maybe a prudent thing to do. So it is being done anyways because actually coal generation is now more profitable. Coal plants are more profitable to run than gas plants. So that's happening anyways. And I do think it will be limited in time and scope. And definitely from the perspective of carbon emissions, we still have the EU ETS system. We still have the cap on emissions. So whatever we generate from coal and emit more this year and next year, that will just eat up these allowances that are there and that are capped anyways. So we'll just have less of them in the future years. So yes, on coal plants, I think we will have increased usage temporarily. And once things go back to quote unquote normal, that will be cut again, especially that, you know, you see all these announcements of different countries that have these coal phase out plants ready and nobody is saying that these will be scrapped. Nobody is saying, oh, by the way, we will not go out of coal at all. I think we are still seeing the dates that were put forward kept as coal phase out dates. So that's temporary. For nuclear, I think the picture is more mixed. We've got some countries like Belgium decides to prolong the lifetime of two of their seven reactors, provided that you know all the safety regulations are met. That's, I think, prolonged by 10 years to 2035. And generally, my opinion is if you have existing nuclear and it's safe to run, you should probably keep it. Because it's, let's face it, it's zero carbon generation. It does not produce carbon emissions. So that also has very small land footprint, which is not something to be taken lightly. So from that perspective, it's not an undesirable technology. Of course, it's very controversial. It, it has lots of risks, some of them very grave, although very, of course, low probability, but significant impact. The commissioning challenges waste, storage, and all of that. So for these reasons, this technology is controversial, is embraced by some countries, is declined by others. Poland actually decided a few years ago that it wants to base part of the electricity system in the future on nuclear, part meaning probably less than 20%. So even if you know Poland goes down this route, it will not be a silver bullet that you know does everything. We will still have to fill 80% with renewables. And this is what we should be concentrating on. And of course, nuclear is just such a vast topic. We could be spending a full hour talking about it. It's just, let me just point two things maybe, you know, it's just very time consuming to develop and build new nuclear power plant. The CapEx requirements, both unit cost and total project costs is very, very high. It's very hard to obtain good cost financing. So cost of capital is very high. Cost of electricity generated, then it is also high. It is rather uncompetitive against some other solutions we have there, renewables plus different types of storage. So I think it demands a very sort of clear-eyed assessment of the attributes. Why do you want to, to have this nuclear? What are the risks? What are the costs? What are the alternatives? What you should compare it with? And then just make your decision based on facts and solid-based analysis. 
And of course, we have to be very realistic about schedules, about time, because it's just very, very long term project. And sometimes I'm just worried that people get so concentrated on this issue that they forget about the sort of low hanging fruit that are there and that can bring benefits, you know, in two, three, five years from now and not 15 years from now, which are renewables, of course, energy efficiency. These are the things that you should be concentrating on now because they are quick fixes, if you will. We still have, you know, the housing stock in Europe is so bad. You know, if we improved the housing stock within 10 years time, we could save, I don't know, 30 percent of, of energy use. So that's big. That This is what we should be concentrating on. And nuclear will be in the picture, of course. There are countries that will be using it. Maybe Poland will be using it. It definitely wants to use it. And the project is, is ongoing, developing. It's still a long way. Well, I can agree with you that nuclear is a very controversial and hot topic. I know that I'm planning my next discussion on nuclear and the role <laughs> of nuclear in Europe's energy mix. And, you know, that's quite a heated topic. I think people feel quite passionate about it either way. But something you mentioned, Monica, and I want to circle back to that was timing of project deployment and getting renewables on the grid as soon as possible, ensuring that there's sufficient storage for flexibility, etc. And, you know, obviously your background and your expertise is very much focused on the policy and regulatory side of things. And we all know that permitting is a huge issue. Can you talk us through what are your recommendations to get these renewables online more quickly how can we speed up the process? You know, where are the regulatory bottlenecks, in your opinion? And what can we do to try and mitigate these risks? Right. So I thank you for that question. I very much like the European Commission perspective put forward in the Repower EU. Especially there was one thing in there that caught my attention, which is European Commission proposes that renewables are treated in Europe as being in overriding public interest. So all investments regarding both just renewable development, but also the grid and the storage going alongside with it would be treated as in overriding public interest. And that is significant because that allows not to cut corners, maybe that would be, you know, a wrong representation, but allows to really optimize all the permitting procedures and shorten the times that are needed for them. The other tool that Commission proposed was these go-to areas for renewables in Europe. So in essence, it is a request for member states that they put forward areas and first, of course, make an assessment which areas, which land plots in the country are suited for renewables and sort of make them designated for renewables. And in those areas, the permitting time should be cut to one year because the thinking behind is, of course, that the assessment, sort of environmental, from the planning perspective, alternative usage and things like that, this assessment would be done by the member state on different levels, probably the most local, the better. And so this assessment would be there already and the investor or the developer would not have to complete all of that again. So that is a very good way of doing things and of speeding up renewables deployment. That would help a lot. And I think 
again, looking back in Poland, I'm quite worried because we are still in this debate about just relaxing the law that we had in place rather than leapfrogging to this new proposal that we should be not just removing barriers, but really making renewables deployment much easier than before. In other words, in Poland, we are just looking at changing the law and going back to where we were in 2016 with all the processes, procedures for permitting for onshore wind. Whereas we should be looking at Repower EU and saying, okay, so now let's just change the regime completely and just make it much easier for everybody. Because really for renewables in Europe, it's not the money that is lacking. It's not the lack of interest from investor side. It's lack of projects. And of course, the problem with the grids. The grids do take quite long. Sometimes they tend to be controversial as well. Then the NIMBY effect, of course, is there. We all know how to deal with that, how to talk to local communities, how to involve them in the discussions. Good practices are there. It's just the will. Will is lacking sometimes, I think. Not the knowledge, not the good practices. And of course, you were asking about barriers. And one of the barriers that we always have in mind is public acceptance. That is sometimes low for these infrastructure projects. And of course, when you look at it logically, all things that we're building, be it houses, be it factories, bridges, roads, everything can in some communities cause a problem and can be rejected. But we still build them. We still manage to get approval. We still manage to get social acceptance for these things because we just need them as societies, as economies. So I don't think it should be anything different for renewables, especially now we talked about this, you know, situation that we are in, the crisis, this war situation, especially now people really, I think, start to understand that this is the road that we should be going because energy independence and energy sovereignty, these two terms come up very often in the discussions now. They are the best secured by those sources that don't use fuels at all, which are renewables. You know, renewables are the are the, the best that, that you can get because you just build them and then, you know, that's very, of course, populist to say, but then they are for free once you build them. <laughs> but you just have to get the projects there. Thank you for explaining that to us. Some of those barriers and I think perhaps the silver lining also that you've highlighted from this energy crisis is the fact that it really is spurring Europe onto its greener future. You know, it's one thing to have the technology and the plans, but sometimes, the, like you say, the projects are lacking or perhaps there's some legacy thinking holding back the progress. And perhaps now, because there is this crisis, there is a sense of urgency and there's no more time for bottlenecks or red tape. And perhaps now we can actually see that being eliminated to a large degree and actual progress being made? Precisely. I think the, yes, the sense of urgency is what we need and what we have now. And I just really hope that the sense of urgency is used in the right direction, if you will. And as really everybody understands what is to be done. And since, of course, all the politicians now and regulators are worried about the upcoming winter and how to get through and how to heat our homes, but 
we should not lose sight of the longer term investments that need to be done for the next winter already. Because if you think about heating homes, so there is only so much you can do in the few months that are left now. But for the next winter, just let's look how many heat pumps we can install. And then, of course, here, the barrier will be supply chain. This is something we have not talked about, but supply chain for all these clean technologies, all this clean tech, that's also a big issue. But of course, it's only temporary as well, because, you know, the economy and the industries basically adjust to growing demand by increasing their supply. So there will be a mismatch, a time mismatch again in that, because, of course, to build a new factory of anything just takes time as well but it will be there. So this problem with supply chain is also temporary, but it will be felt in the upcoming two, three years, for sure. So that's also something to be looked at. Uh, It is looked at by member states, by the commission. Uh, There are proposals to speed up, to incentivize industries to produce more. For example, Germany just recently signed sort of a, I don't know how to call it, memorandum of understanding with a heat pump producing industry to entice them to just speed up their efforts to just supply those things. Also in Poland, we have good examples now, two, or actually I think three new factories for heat pumps will be built in the coming years, producing 500,000 units per year, which will be quite huge. So there are good signs that things are going in the right direction. We just cannot lose focus. We just cannot be drawn into scrambling around and, you know, thinking about next winter only, whereas we have longer term sustainable solutions out there that we just have to concentrate on. Well said. I think staying focused is definitely key to making it through this winter. And like you say, winters to come. Monica, we are almost out of time. Do you have any final thoughts or anything you'd like to emphasize before we conclude? Maybe just one thing that in all that push towards renewables, we sometimes, and and all the thinking about prices, market designs, and how to really integrate large amounts of renewables, sometimes I feel like we forget about this big, big resource that we have at hand, which is the demand side flexibility. Actually, RAB has recently published a paper on that. It's called Joy of Flex. I highly recommend reading because it's really that this part of energy system, so the response on the consumer side is sometimes overlooked and is not viewed as something that should be pursued because it will be not reliable, it will be not big enough just to merit further discussion. And we think it's absolutely otherwise. It's a big system resource to be tapped and that will help to integrate large amounts of renewables in the fuel mix, basically shifting usage from peak times to base loads. The technologies out there, we just need to unlock this potential on the consumer side and it will help vastly. And it will also reduce total system cost, which is not insignificant. It will reduce the amount of investment on the supply side, on the grid side. It will just help in many different aspects and it will reduce bills for the consumers. So that's maybe one thought that I would be finishing off. Demand side flexibility is a big part of our future energy mixes, and we should be really focusing on that part as well. 
it's a little bit sad to end our conversation talking about demand-side flexibility. I feel like that's a whole new conversation that we need to have, Monica, <laughs> but unfortunately we're, we out of, be. we're out of time. But what I can say is that we will include a link to that RAP report that you mentioned in the text below so our listeners can access that Wonderful. easily. And Monica, if I can just thank you for your time and for joining us and for sharing your insights. It's been a pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you so much, Pamela. It was my pleasure. And thank you to our listeners. We hope you enjoyed it and we'll meet you next time. You have been listening to the Inlet and Friends Energy Transitions podcast. For more podcast recordings relating to the energy transition, please visit inlet.world. Bye for now. Thank you.